0: section twelve of the oxford book of american essays chosen by brander matthews this librivox recording is in the public domain section twelve he always held himself in a kind of reserve with his friend as if he had said let us respect our personality and not make a mess of friendship he saw with emerson the risk of degrading it to trivial conveniency why insist on rash personal relations with your friend leave this touching and clawing yet i would not give an unfair notion of his aloofness his fine sense of the sacredness of the me and the not me and at the risk of not being believed i will relate an incident which was often repeated Calvin had the practice of passing a portion of the night in the contemplation of its beauties, and would come into our chamber over the roof of the conservatory through the open window, summer and winter, and go to sleep on the foot of my bed. He would do this always exactly in this way. He never was content to stay in the chamber if we compelled him to go upstairs and through the door. He had the obstinacy of General Grant— But this is by the way in the morning he performed his toilet and went down to breakfast with the rest of the family now when the mistress was absent from home and at no other time calvin would come in the morning when the bell rang to the head of the bed put up his feet and look into my face follow me about when i rose assist at the dressing and in many purring ways show his fondness as if he had plainly said i know that she has gone away but i am here such was calvin in rare moments he had his limitations whatever passion he had for nature he had no conception of art there was sent to him once a fine and very expressive cat's head in bronze by frémier i placed it on the floor he regarded it intently approached it cautiously and crouchingly touched it with his nose perceived the fraud turned away abruptly and never would notice it afterward on the whole his life was not only a successful one but a happy one he never had but one fear so far as i know he had a mortal and reasonable terror of plumbers he would never stay in the house when they were here no coaxing could quiet him of course he didn't share our fear about their charges but he must have had some dreadful experience with them in that portion of his life which is unknown to us a plumber was to him the devil and i have no doubt that in his scheme plumbers were foreordained to do him mischief in speaking of his worth It has never occurred to me to estimate Calvin by the worldly standard. I know that it is customary now, when anyone dies, to ask how much he was worth, and that no obituary in the newspapers is considered complete without such an estimate. The plumbers in our house were one day overheard to say that they say that she says that he says that he wouldn't take a hundred dollars for him. It is unnecessary to say that I never made such a remark, and that so far as Calvin was concerned there was no purchase in money. As I look back upon it, Calvin's life seems to me a fortunate one, for it was natural and unforced. He ate when he was hungry, slept when he was sleepy, and enjoyed existence to the very tips of his toes, and the end of his expressive and slow-moving tail. He delighted to roam about the garden and stroll among the trees and to lie on the green grass and luxuriate in all the sweet influences of summer. You could never accuse him of idleness, and yet he knew the secret of repose. The poet who wrote so prettily of him that his little life was rounded with a sleep understated his felicity it was rounded with a good many his conscience never seemed to interfere with his slumbers in fact he had good habits and a contented mind i can see him now walk in at the study door sit down by my chair bring his tail artistically about his feet and look up at me with unspeakable happiness in his handsome face I often thought that he felt the dumb limitation which denied him the power of language, but since he was denied speech, he scorned the inarticulate mouthings of the lower animals. The vulgar mewing and yowling of the cat species was beneath him. He sometimes uttered a sort of articulate and well-bred ejaculation when he wished to call attention to something that he considered remarkable, or to some want of his but he never went whining about he would sit for hours at a closed door when he desired to enter without a murmur and when it was opened he never admitted that he had been impatient by bolting in though speech he had not and the unpleasant kind of utterance given to his race he would not use he had a mighty power of purr to express his measureless content with congenial society there was in him a musical organ with stops of varied power and expression upon which i have no doubt he could have performed scarlatti's celebrated cat's fugue when calvin died of old age or was carried off by one of the diseases incident to youth it is impossible to say for his departure was as quiet as his advent was mysterious i only know that he appeared to us in this world in his perfect stature and beauty and that after a time like lohengrin he withdrew in his illness there was nothing more to be regretted than in all his blameless life i suppose there never was an illness that had more of dignity and sweetness and resignation in it it came on gradually in a kind of listlessness and want of appetite an alarming symptom was his preference for the warmth of a furnace register to the lively sparkle of the open wood fire whatever pain he suffered he bore it in silence and seemed only anxious not to obtrude his malady we tempted him with the delicacies of the season but it soon became impossible for him to eat and for two weeks he ate or drank scarcely anything Sometimes he made an effort to take something, but it was evident that he made the effort to please us. The neighbors, and I am convinced that the advice of neighbors is never good for anything, suggested catnip. He wouldn't even smell it. We had the attendance of an amateur practitioner of medicine, whose real office was the cure of souls, but nothing touched his case. He took what was offered but it was with the air of one to whom the time for pellets was past. he sat or lay day after day almost motionless never once making a display of those vulgar convulsions or contortions of pain which are so disagreeable to society his favorite place was on the brightest spot of the smyrna rug by the conservatory where the sunlight fell and he could hear the fountain play if we went to him and exhibited our interest in his condition he always purred in recognition of our sympathy and when i spoke his name he looked up with an expression that said i understand it old fellow but it's no use he was to all who came to visit him a model of calmness and patience in affliction I was absent from home at the last, but heard by daily postal card of his failing condition and never again saw him alive. One sunny morning he rose from his rug, went into the conservatory. He was very thin then, walked around it deliberately, looking at all the plants he knew, and then went to the bay window in the dining room and stood a long time looking out upon the little field, now browned and sere and toward the garden where perhaps the happiest hours of his life had been spent it was a last look he turned and walked away laid himself down upon the bright spot in the rug and quietly died it is not too much to say that a little shock went through the neighbourhood when it was known that calvin was dead so marked was his individuality and his friends one after another came in to see him there was no sentimental nonsense about his obsequies it was felt that any parade would have been distasteful to him john who acted as undertaker prepared a candle-box for him and i believe assumed a professional decorum but there may have been the usual levity underneath for i heard that he remarked in the kitchen that it was the driest wake he ever attended everybody however felt a fondness for Calvin, and regarded him with a certain respect. Between him and Bertha there existed a great friendship, and she apprehended his nature. She used to say that sometimes she was afraid of him. He looked at her so intelligently. She was never certain that he was what he appeared to be. When I returned, they had laid Calvin on a table in an upper chamber by an open window it was February. He reposed in a candle-box, lined about the edge with evergreen, and at his head stood a little wine-glass with flowers. He lay with his head tucked down in his arms, a favorite position of his before the fire, as if asleep in the comfort of his soft and exquisite fur. It was the involuntary exclamation of those who saw him, how natural he looks, as for myself i said nothing john buried him under the twin hawthorn trees one white and the other pink in a spot where calvin was fond of lying and listening to the hum of summer insects and the twitter of birds perhaps i have failed to make appear the individuality of character that was so evident to those who knew him at any rate i have set down nothing concerning him but the literal truth he was always a mystery i did not know whence he came i do not know whither he has gone i would not weave one spray of falsehood in the wreath i lay upon his grave from my summer in a garden by charles dudley warner copyright eighteen seventy by fields osgood and company copyright eighteen ninety eight by charles dudley warner copyright nineteen twelve by susan lee warner five american contributions to civilization by charles william Eliot. looking back over forty centuries of history we observe that many nations have made characteristic contributions to the progress of civilization the beneficent effects of which have been permanent although the races that made them may have lost their national form and organization or their relative standing among the nations of the earth thus the hebrew race during many centuries made supreme contributions to religious thought and the greek during the brief climax of the race to speculative philosophy architecture sculpture and the drama the roman people developed military colonization aqueducts roads and bridges and a great body of public law large parts of which still survive and the italians of the middle ages and the renaissance developed ecclesiastical organization and the fine arts as tributary to the splendor of the church and to municipal luxury england for several centuries has contributed to the institutional development of representative government and public justice the dutch in the sixteenth century made a superb struggle for free thought and free government france in the eighteenth century taught the doctrine of individual freedom and the theory of human rights and germany at two periods within the nineteenth century fifty years apart proved the vital force of the sentiment of nationality i ask you to consider with me what characteristic and durable contributions the american people have been making to the progress of civilization. The first and principal contribution to which I shall ask your attention is the advance made in the United States, not in theory only, but in practice, toward the abandonment of war as the means of settling disputes between nations, the substitution of discussion and arbitration, and the avoidance of armaments. If the intermittent Indian fighting and brief contest with the Barbary Corsairs be disregarded the united states have had only four years and a quarter of international war in the one hundred and seven years since the adoption of the constitution within the same period the united states have been a party to forty seven arbitrations being more than half of all that have taken place in the modern world the questions settled by these arbitrations have been just such as have commonly caused wars namely questions of boundary fisheries damage caused by war or civil disturbances and injuries to commerce some of them were of great magnitude the four made during the treaty of washington may eighth eighteen seventy one being the most important that have ever taken place confident in their strength and relying on their ability to adjust international differences the united states have habitually maintained by voluntary enlistment for short terms a standing army and a fleet which in proportion to the population are insignificant the beneficent effects of this american contribution to civilization are of two sorts in the first place the direct evils of war and of preparations for war have been diminished and secondly the influence of the war spirit on the perennial conflict between the rights of the single personal unit and the powers of the multitude that constitute organized society or in other words between individual freedom and collective authority has been reduced to the lowest terms war has been and still is the school of collectivism the warrant of tyranny. Century after century, tribes, clans, and nations have sacrificed the liberty of the individual to the fundamental necessity of being strong for combined defense or attack in war. Individual freedom is crushed in war, for the nature of war is inevitably despotic. It says to the private person, Obey, without a question, even unto death. Die in this ditch without knowing why walk into that deadly thicket mount this embankment behind which are men who will try to kill you lest you should kill them make part of an immense machine for blind destruction cruelty rapine and killing at this moment every young man in continental europe learns the lesson of absolute military obedience and feels himself subject to this crushing power of militant society against which no rights of the individual to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness avail anything. This pernicious influence inherent in the social organization of all continental Europe during many centuries the American people have for generations escaped and they show other nations how to escape it i ask your attention to the favorable conditions under which this contribution of the united states to civilization has been made there has been a deal of fighting on the american continent during the past three centuries but it has not been of the sort which most imperils liberty the first european colonists who occupied portions of the coast of north america encountered in the indians men of the stone age who ultimately had to be resisted and quelled by force the indian races were at a stage of development thousands of years behind that of the europeans they could not be assimilated for the most part they could not be taught or even reasoned with With a few exceptions, they had to be driven away by prolonged fighting, or subdued by force, so that they would live peaceably with the whites. This warfare, however, always had in it for the whites a large element of self-defense. The homes and families of the settlers were to be defended against a stealthy and pitiless foe constant exposure to the attacks of savages was only one of the formidable dangers and difficulties which for a hundred years the early settlers had to meet and which developed in them courage hardiness and persistence the french and english wars on the north american continent always more or less mixed with indian warfare were characterized by race hatred and religious animosity two of the commonest causes of war in all ages but they did not tend to fasten upon the english colonists any objectionable public authority or to contract the limits of individual liberty they furnished a school of martial qualities at small cost to liberty in the war of independence there was a distinct hope and purpose to enlarge individual liberty it made possible a confederation of the colonies and ultimately the adoption of the constitution of the united states it gave to the thirteen colonies a lesson in collectivism but it was a needed lesson on the necessity of combining their force to resist an oppressive external authority the war of eighteen twelve is properly called the second war of independence for it was truly a fight for liberty and for the rights of neutrals in resistance to the impressment of seamen and other oppressions growing out of european conflicts the civil war of eighteen sixty one to eighteen sixty five was waged on the side of the north primarily to prevent the dismemberment of the country and secondarily and incidentally to destroy the institution of slavery on the northern side it therefore called forth a generous element of popular ardor in defense of free institutions and though it temporarily caused centralization of great powers in the government it did as much to promote individual freedom as it did to strengthen public authority in all this series of fightings the main motives were self-defense resistance to oppression the enlargement of liberty and the conservation of national acquisitions the war with mexico it is true was a wholly different type that was a war of conquest and of conquest chiefly in the interest of african slavery it was also an unjust attack made by a powerful people on a feeble one but it lasted less than two years and the number of men engaged in it was at no time large moreover by the treaty which ended the war the conquering nation agreed to pay the conquered eighteen million dollars in partial compensation for some of the territory wrested from it instead of demanding a huge war indemnity as the european way is its results contradicted the anticipations both of those who advocated and of those who opposed it it was one of the wrongs which prepared the way for the great rebellion but its direct evils were of moderate extent and it had no effect on the perennial conflict between individual liberty and public power in the meantime partly as the results of indian fighting and the mexican war but chiefly through purchases and arbitrations the american people had occupied a territory so extensive so defended by oceans gulfs and great lakes and so intersected by those great natural highways navigable rivers that it would obviously be impossible for any enemy to overrun or subdue it The civilized nations of Europe, Western Asia, and Northern Africa have always been liable to hostile incursions from without. Over and over again, barbarous hordes have overthrown established civilizations, and at this moment there is not a nation of Europe which does not feel obliged to maintain monstrous armaments for defense against its neighbors the american people have long been exempt from such terrors and are now absolutely free from this necessity of keeping in readiness to meet heavy assaults the absence of a great standing army and of a large fleet has been a main characteristic of the united states in contrast with the other civilized nations this has been a great inducement to immigration and a prime cause of the country's rapid increase in wealth the united states have no formidable neighbor except great britain in canada in april eighteen seventeen by a convention made between great britain and the united states without much public discussion or observation these two powerful nations agreed that each should keep on the great lakes only a few police vessels of insignificant size and armament this agreement was made but four years after Perry's naval victory on Lake Erie, and only three years after the burning of Washington by a British force. It is one of the first acts of Monroe's first administration, and it would be difficult to find in all history a more judicious or effectual agreement between two powerful neighbors. For eighty years this beneficent convention has helped to keep the peace, the european way would have been to build competitive fleets dockyards and fortresses all of which would have helped to bring on war during the periods of mutual exasperation which have occurred since eighteen seventeen monroe's second administration was signalized six years later by the declaration that the united states would consider any attempt on the part of the holy alliance to extend their system to any portion of this hemisphere as dangerous to the peace and safety of the united states this announcement was designed to prevent the introduction on the american continent of the horrible european system with its balance of power its alliances offensive and defensive in opposing groups and its perpetual armaments on an enormous scale that a declaration expressly intended to promote peace and prevent armaments should now be perverted into an argument for arming and for a belligerent public policy is an extraordinary perversion of the true american doctrine the ordinary causes of war between nation and nation have been lacking in america for the last century and a quarter how many wars in the world's history have been due to contending dynasties how many of the most cruel and protracted wars have been due to religious strife how many to race hatred no one of these causes of war has been efficacious in america since the french were overcome in canada by the english in seventeen fifty nine looking forward to the future we find it impossible to imagine circumstances under which any of these common causes of war can take effect on the north american continent Therefore, the ordinary motives for maintaining armaments in time of peace and concentrating the powers of government in such a way as to interfere with individual liberty have not been in play in the United States as among the nations of Europe, and are not likely to be. Such have been the favorable conditions under which America has made its best contribution to the progress of our race there are some people of a perverted sentimentality who occasionally lament the absence in our country of the ordinary inducements to war on the ground that war develops certain noble qualities in some of the combatants and gives opportunity for the practice of heroic virtues such as courage loyalty and self-sacrifice it is further said that prolonged peace makes nations effeminate luxurious and materialistic and substitutes for the high ideals of the patriot soldier the low ideals of the farmer manufacturer tradesman and pleasure seeker this view seems to me to err in two opposite ways in the first place it forgets that war in spite of the fact that it develops some splendid virtues is the most horrible occupation that human beings can possibly engage in it is cruel treacherous and murderous defensive warfare particularly on the part of a weak nation against powerful invaders or oppressors excites a generous sympathy but for every heroic defence there must be an attack by a preponderating force and war being the conflict of the two must be judged by its moral effects not on one party but on both parties moreover the weaker party may have the worse cause the immediate ill effects of war are bad enough but its after effects are generally worse because indefinitely prolonged and indefinitely wasting and damaging at this moment thirty-one years after the end of our civil war there are two great evils afflicting our country which took their rise in that war namely one the belief of a large proportion of our people in money without intrinsic value or worth less than its face and made current solely by act of congress and two the payment of immense annual sums in pensions it is the paper money delusion born of the civil war which generated and supports the silver money delusion of today as a consequence of the war the nation has paid two billion dollars in pensions within 33 years so far as pensions are paid to disabled persons they are a just and inevitable but unproductive expenditure so far as they are paid to persons who are not disabled men or women they are in the main not only unproductive but demoralizing so far as they promote the marriage of young women to old men as a pecuniary speculation they create a grave social evil it is impossible to compute or even imagine the losses and injuries already inflicted by the fiat money delusion and we know that some of the worst evils of the pension system will go on for a hundred years to come unless the laws about widows pensions are changed for the better it is a significant fact that of the existing pensioners of the war of 1812 only twenty-one are surviving soldiers or sailors while three thousand eight hundred and twenty six are widows footnote june 30th 1895 and footnote war gratifies or used to gratify the combative instinct of mankind but it gratifies also the love of plunder destruction cruel discipline and arbitrary power it is doubtful whether fighting with modern appliances will continue to gratify the savage instinct of combat for it is not likely that in the future two opposing lines of men can ever meet or any line or column reach an enemy's entrenchments the machine-gun can only be compared to the scythe which cuts off every blade of grass within its sweep It has made cavalry charges impossible, just as the modern ironclad has made impossible the maneuvers of one of Nelson's fleets. On land, the only mode of approach of one line to another must hereafter be by concealment, crawling, or surprise. Naval actions will henceforth be conflicts between opposing machines guided to be sure by men but it will be the best machine that wins and not necessarily the most enduring men war will become a contest between treasuries or war chests for now that ten thousand men can fire away a million dollars worth of ammunition in an hour no poor nation can long resist a rich one unless there be some extraordinary difference between the two in mental and moral strength. The view that war is desirable omits also the consideration that modern social and industrial life affords ample opportunities for the courageous and loyal discharge of duty apart from the barbarities of warfare. There are many serviceable occupations in civil life which call for all the courage and fidelity of the best soldier and for more than his independent responsibility because not pursued in masses or under immediate command of superiors such occupations are those of the locomotive engineer the electric lineman the railroad brakeman the city fireman and the policeman the occupation of the locomotive engineer requires constantly a high degree of skill alertness fidelity and resolution and at any moment may call for heroic self-forgetfulness the occupation of a lineman requires all the courage and endurance of a soldier whose lurking foe is mysterious and invisible in the two years eighteen ninety three and eighteen ninety four there were thirty four thousand trainmen killed and wounded on the railroads of the united states and twenty five thousand other railroad employees besides i need not enlarge on the dangers of the fireman's occupation or on the disciplined gallantry with which it risks are habitually incurred the policeman in large cities needs every virtue of the best soldier for in the discharge of many of his most important duties he is alone even the feminine occupation of the trained nurse illustrates every heroic quality which can possibly be exhibited in war for she simply in the way of duty without the stimulus of excitement or companionship runs risks from which many a soldier in hot blood would shrink no one need to be anxious about the lack of opportunities in civilized life for the display of heroic qualities New industries demand new forms of fidelity and self-sacrificing devotion. Every generation develops some new kind of hero. Did it ever occur to you that the scab is a creditable type of 19th century hero? In defense of his rights as an individual, he deliberately incurs the reprobation of many of his fellows and runs the immediate risk of bodily injury or even of death he also risks his livelihood for the future and thereby the well-being of his family he steadily asserts in action his right to work on such conditions as he sees fit to make and in so doing he exhibits remarkable courage and renders a great service to his fellow-men he is generally a quiet unpretending silent person who values his personal freedom more than the society and approbation of his mates often he is impelled to work by family affection but this fact does not diminish his heroism there are file closers behind the line of battle of the bravest regiment Another modern personage who needs heroic endurance and often exhibits it is the public servant who steadily does his duty against the outcry of a party press bent on perverting his every word and act. Through the telegram, cheap postage, and the daily newspaper, the forces of hasty public opinion can now be concentrated and expressed with a rapidity and intensity unknown to preceding generations in consequence the independent thinker or actor or the public servant when his thoughts or acts run counter to prevailing popular or party opinions encounters sudden and intense obloquy which to many temperaments is very formidable that habit of submitting to the opinion of the majority which democracy fosters renders the storm of detraction and calumny all the more difficult to endure makes it indeed so intolerable to many citizens that they will conceal or modify their opinions rather than endure it yet the very breath of life for a democracy is free discussion and the taking account of all opinions honestly held and reasonably expressed the unreality of the vilification of public men in the modern press is often revealed by the sudden change when an eminent public servant retires or dies a man for whom no words of derision or condemnation were strong enough yesterday is recognized tomorrow as an honorable and serviceable person and a credit to his country nevertheless this habit of partisan ridicule and denunciation in the daily reading matter of millions of people calls for a new kind of courage and toughness in public men calls for it not in brief moments of excitement only but steadily year in and year out clearly there is no need of bringing on wars in order to breed heroes civilized life affords plenty of opportunities for heroes and for a better kind than war or any other savagery has ever produced moreover None but lunatics would set a city on fire in order to give opportunities for heroism to firemen, or introduce the cholera or yellow fever to give physicians and nurses opportunity for practicing disinterested devotion, or condemn thousands of people to extreme poverty in order that some well-to-do persons might practice a beautiful charity. It is equally crazy to advocate war on the ground that it is a school for heroes another misleading argument for war needs brief notice it is said that war is a school of national development that a nation when conducting a great war puts forth prodigious exertions to raise money, supply munitions, enlist troops, and keep them in the field, and often gets a clearer conception and a better control of its own material and moral forces while making these unusual exertions. The nation which means to live in peace necessarily forgoes, it is said, these valuable opportunities of abnormal activity. Naturally, Such a nation's abnormal activities devoted to destruction would be diminished, but its normal and abnormal activities devoted to construction and improvement ought to increase. One great reason for the rapid development of the United States since the adoption of the Constitution is the comparative exemption of the whole people from war, dread of war, and preparations for war. The energies of the people have been directed into other channels the progress of applied science during the present century, and the new ideals concerning the well-being of human multitudes have opened great fields for the useful application of national energy. This immense territory of ours, stretching from ocean to ocean, and for the most part, but imperfectly developed and sparsely settled, affords a broad, field for the beneficent application of the richest national forces during an indefinite period there is no department of national activity in which we could not advantageously put forth much more force than we now expend and there are great fields which we have never cultivated at all as examples i may mention the post office national sanitation public works and education although great improvements have been made during the past fifty years in the collection and delivery of mail matter much still remains to be done both in the city and country and particularly in the country in the mail facilities secured to our people, we are far behind several European governments, whereas we ought to be far in advance of every European government except Switzerland, since the rapid interchange of ideas and the promotion of family, friendly, and commercial intercourse are of more importance to a democracy than to any other form of political society. Our national government takes very little pains about the sanitation of the country or its deliverance from injurious insects and parasites yet these are matters of gravest interest with which only the general government can deal because action by separate states or cities is necessarily ineffectual to fight pestilences needs quite as much energy skill and courage as to carry on war indeed. The foes are more insidious and awful, and the means of resistance less obvious. On the average and large scale, the professions which heal and prevent disease and mitigate suffering call for much more ability, constancy, and devotion than the professions which inflict wounds and death and all sorts of human misery our government has never touched the important subject of national roads by which i mean not railroads but common highways yet here is a great subject for beneficent action through government in which we need only go for our lessons to little republican switzerland inundations and droughts are great enemies of the human race against which government ought to create defenses because private enterprise cannot cope with such wide-spreading evils popular education is another great field in which public activity should be indefinitely enlarged not so much through the action of the federal government though even there a much more effective supervision should be provided than now exists but through the action of states cities and towns we have already begun to apprehend the fundamental necessity and infinite value of public education and to appreciate the immense advantages to be derived from additional expenditure for it what prodigious possibilities of improvement are suggested by the single statement that the average annual expenditure for the schooling of a child in the united states is only about eighteen dollars here is a cause which requires from hundreds of thousands of men and women keen intelligence party devotion to duty and a steady uplifting and advancement of all its standards and ideals the system of public instruction should embody for coming generations all the virtues of the mediaeval church it should stand for the brotherhood and unity of all classes and conditions it should exalt the joys of the intellectual life above all material delights and it should produce the best constituted and most wisely directed intellectual and moral host that the world has seen in view of such unutilized opportunities as these for the beneficent application of great public forces does it not seem monstrous that war should be advocated on the ground that it gives occasion for rallying and using the national energies the second eminent contribution which the united states have made to civilization is their thorough acceptance in theory and practice of the widest religious toleration as a means of suppressing individual liberty the collective authority of the church when elaborately organized in a hierarchy directed by one head and absolutely devoted in every rank to its service comes next in proved efficiency to that concentration of powers in government which enables it to carry on war effectively the western christian church organized under the bishop of rome acquired during the middle ages a centralized authority which quite overrode both the temporal ruler and the rising spirit of nationality for a time christian church and christian states acted together just as in egypt during many earlier centuries the great powers of civil and religious rule had been united the crusades marked the climax of the power of the church thereafter church and state were often in conflict and during this prolonged conflict the seeds of liberty were planted took root and made some sturdy growth we can see now as we look back on the history of europe how fortunate it was that the colonization of north america by europeans was deferred until after the period of the reformation and especially until after the elizabethan period in england the luther period in germany and the splendid struggle of the dutch for liberty in holland the founders of new england and new york were men who had imbibed the principles of resistance both to arbitrary civil power and to universal ecclesiastical authority hence it came about that within the territory now covered by the united states no single ecclesiastical organization ever obtained a wide and oppressive control and that in different parts of this great region churches very unlike in doctrine and organization were almost simultaneously established it has been an inevitable consequence of this condition of things that the church as a whole in the united states has not been an effective opponent of any form of human rights for generations it has been divided into numerous sects and denominations no one of which has been able to claim more than a tenth of the population as its adherents and the practices of these numerous denominations have been profoundly modified by political theories and practices and by social customs natural to new communities formed under the prevailing conditions of free intercourse and rapid growth The constitutional prohibition of religious tests as qualifications for office gave the United States the leadership among the nations in disassociating theological opinions and political rights. No one denomination or ecclesiastical organization in the United States has held great properties or has had the means of conducting its ritual with costly pomp or its charitable works with imposing liberality no splendid architectural exhibitions of church power have interested or overawed the population on the contrary there has prevailed in general a great simplicity in public worship until very recent years Some splendors have been lately developed by religious bodies in the great cities, but these splendors and luxuries have been almost simultaneously exhibited by religious bodies of very different, not to say, opposite kinds. Thus in New York City the Jews, the Greek Church, the Catholics, and the Episcopalians have all erected, or undertaken to erect, magnificent edifices but these recent demonstrations of wealth and zeal are so distributed among differing religious organizations that they cannot be imagined to indicate a coming centralization of ecclesiastical influence adverse to individual liberty in the united states the great principle of religious toleration is better understood and more firmly established than in any other nation of the earth it is not only embodied in legislation but also completely recognized in the habits and customs of good society elsewhere it may be a long road from legal to social recognition of religious liberty as the example of england shows this recognition alone would mean to any competent student of history that the united states had made an unexampled contribution to the reconciliation of just governmental power with just freedom for the individual inasmuch as the partial establishment of religious toleration has been the main work of civilization during the past four centuries in view of this characteristic and infinitely beneficent contribution to human happiness and progress how pitiable seem the temporary outbursts of bigotry and fanaticism which have occasionally marred the fair record of our country in regard to religious toleration If anyone imagines that this American contribution to civilization is no longer important, that the victory for toleration has been already won, let him recall the fact that the last years of the nineteenth century have witnessed two horrible religious persecutions, one by a Christian nation, the other by a Moslem; one of the Jews by Russia, and the other of the Armenians by Turkey the third characteristic contribution which the united states have made to civilization has been the safe development of a manhood suffrage nearly universal the experience of the united states has brought out several principles with regard to the suffrage which have not been clearly apprehended by some eminent political philosophers In the first place, American experience has demonstrated the advantages of a gradual approach to universal suffrage over a sudden leap. Universal suffrage is not the first and only means of attaining democratic government. Rather, it is the ultimate goal of successful democracy. It is not a specific for the cure of all political ills. On the contrary, it may itself easily be the source of great political evils. The people of the United States feel its dangers today. When constituencies are large, it aggravates the well-known difficulties of party government, so that many of the ills which threaten democratic communities at this moment, whether in Europe or America, proceed from the breakdown of party government rather than from failures of universal suffrage. The methods of party government were elaborated where suffrage was limited, and constituencies were small manhood suffrage has not worked perfectly well in the united states or in any other nation where it has been adopted and it is not likely very soon to work perfectly anywhere it is like freedom of the will for the individual the only atmosphere in which virtue can grow but an atmosphere in which sin can also grow Like freedom of the will, it needs to be surrounded with checks and safeguards, particularly in the childhood of the nation, but like freedom of the will, it is the supreme good, the goal of perfected democracy. Secondly, like freedom of the will, universal suffrage has an educational effect, which has been mentioned by many writers, but has seldom been clearly apprehended or adequately described. This educational effect is produced in two ways. In the first place, the combination of individual freedom with social mobility, which a wide suffrage tends to produce, permits the capable to rise through all grades of society, even within a single generation, and this freedom to rise is intensely stimulating to personal ambition. Thus, every capable American, from youth to age, is bent on bettering himself and his condition, Nothing can be more striking than the contrast between the mental condition of an average American belonging to the laborious classes, but conscious that he can rise to the top of the social scale, and that of a European mechanic, peasant or tradesman, who knows that he cannot rise out of his class, and is content with his hereditary classification. The state of mind of the American prompts to constant struggle for self-improvement, and the acquisition of all sorts of property and power in the second place it is a direct effect of a broad suffrage that the voters become periodically interested in the discussion of grave public problems which carry their minds away from the routine of the daily labor and household experience out into larger fields the instrumentalities of this prolonged education have been multiplied and improved enormously within the last fifty years In no field of human endeavor have the fruits of the introduction of steam and electrical power been more striking than in the methods of reaching multitudes of people with instructive narratives, expositions, and arguments. The multiplication of newspapers, magazines, and books is only one of the immense developments in the means of reaching the people. The advocates of any public cause now have it in their power to provide hundreds of newspapers with the same copy or the same plates for simultaneous issue the mails provide the means of circulating millions of leaflets and pamphlets the interest in the minds of the people which prompts to the reading of these multiplied communications comes from the frequently recurring elections the more difficult the intellectual problem presented in any given election the more educative the effect of the discussion MANY MODERN INDUSTRIAL AND FINANCIAL PROBLEMS ARE EXTREMELY DIFFICULT, EVEN FOR HIGHLY EDUCATED MEN. AS SUBJECTS OF EARNEST THOUGHT AND DISCUSSION ON THE FARM AND IN THE WORKSHOP, FACTORY, ROLLING MILL, AND MINE, THEY SUPPLY A MENTAL TRAINING FOR MILLIONS OF ADULTS, THE LIKE OF WHICH HAS NEVER BEFORE BEEN SEEN IN THE WORLD. In these discussions it is not only the receptive masses that are benefited. The classes that supply the appeals to the masses are also benefited in a high degree. There is no better mental exercise for the most highly trained man than the effort to expound a difficult subject in so clear a way that the untrained man can understand it in a republic in which the final appeal is to manhood suffrage the educated minority of the people is constantly stimulated to exertion by the instinct of self-preservation as well as by love of country they see dangers in proposals made to universal suffrage and they must exert themselves to ward off these dangers the position of the educated and well-to-do classes is a thoroughly wholesome one in this respect they cannot depend for the preservation of their advantage on landowning hereditary privilege or any legislation not equally applicable to the poorest and humblest citizen they must maintain their superiority by being superior they cannot live in a too safe corner I touch here on a misconception which underlies much of the criticism of universal suffrage. It is commonly said that the rule of the majority must be the rule of the most ignorant and incapable, the multitude being necessarily uninstructed as to taxation, public finance, and foreign relations, and untrained to active thought on such difficult subjects. Now, universal suffrage is merely a convention as to where the last appeal shall lie for the decision of public questions, and it is the rule of the majority only in this sense. The educated classes are undoubtedly a minority, but it is not safe to assume that they monopolize the good sense of the community. On the contrary, it is very clear that native good judgment and good feeling are not proportional to education and that among multitude of men who have only an elementary education a large proportion will possess both good judgment and good feeling indeed persons who can neither read nor write may possess a large share of both as is constantly seen in regions where opportunities for education in childhood have been scanty or inaccessible It is not to be supposed that the cultivated classes under a regime of universal suffrage are not going to try to make their cultivation felt in the discussion and disposal of public questions. Any result under universal suffrage is a complex effect of the discussion of the public question in hand by the educated classes in the presence of the comparatively uneducated, when a majority of both classes taken together is ultimately to settle the question. In practice, both classes divide on almost every issue, but in any case, if the educated classes cannot hold their own with the uneducated by means of their superior physical, mental, and moral qualities, they are obviously unfit to lead society with education should come better powers of argument and persuasion a stricter sense of honor and a greater general effectiveness with these advantages the educated classes must undoubtedly appeal to the less educated and try to convert them to their way of thinking but this is a process which is good for both sets of people indeed it is the best possible process for the training of freemen educated or uneducated, rich or poor. End of section 12.